Uh, good morning again. My name is Sean. I'm one of your teaching elders here. It's my privilege this morning to take us into God's Word. This morning we'll be looking at two passages, a brief dip into Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, and then spending most of our time in the narrative found in Acts chapter 5, verses 40 through 42. Those are printed for you on page 11 in the ESV translation. And boys and girls, you have your own translation as well found at the bottom of page 11. You want to keep that open in front of you because we will be referring to that throughout uh, the sermon this morning. So we've been in this series that we're calling uh, No Comfort Zone. And we've been looking at, to God's Word for tools, for, for resources to help us leave our comfort zones, those things that kind of hold us back from being a more robust blessing to our community, that God has called us to seek the health of the village of Midlothian and beyond, and sometimes our comfort zones hinder that calling. So we've looked at doing missions in a culture that sometimes bites us. Last week we looked at being this radically different community, one that by the power of the Spirit through Jesus Christ doesn't judge each other. Instead, we love each other in our differences. And this week, we're going to look at suffering. None of us likes to suffer, and we all have strategies for avoiding suffering. We've become very comfortable in those strategies, very comfortable at avoiding suffering, but what if God calls His people to embrace rather than avoid suffering? If so, well then avoiding suffering is a comfort zone that we need to get out of. And so with that in mind, would you please stand as we look at God's Word together, reading Matthew 5, 11 through 12, and then Acts 5, verses 40 through 42. This is God's Word. First, the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then Acts 5, 40 and 42. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly Father, it is our joy to come before your word this morning, to hear from you, to touch you, Lord, to experience the reality of your Son, Jesus. We pray, Father, that as we open this text up, that we would come to know more and more of his beautiful person, that we would see his glory, that we would taste of his beauty. And that we would find healing and forgiveness. Oh Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. And please be seated. So our theme this morning, what we're going to kind of wrap everything around is this. Is that we try to avoid suffering. But when we embrace it, Jesus brings joy. So I want to start out by asking this, a very simple question. Why do we avoid suffering? 
You know, Matthew 5 is part of a very famous sermon that Jesus preached called the Sermon on the Mount. Most likely, he preached at several different places, several different times through his three-year public ministry. And as the Holy Spirit brought remembrance to his disciples, they kind of put it all together into one sermon. But he gave this thing multiple times all over Palestine. And in it, Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, promises that we will be blessed It's one of those religious words we use so often in church world that we lose the impact of it. Blessed is a simple word that just means happy. Jesus says that when others taunt us, harass us, slander us, just do bad stuff because of Jesus, we will be happy. That's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? And Jesus says this, and yet we avoid suffering. Why? Because suffering stinks, right? It's not fun. It's very uncomfortable. I've tasted some of these things Jesus has talked about, and you have too. And when going through it, it is tough to believe Jesus' words here, isn't it? It is tough to believe Jesus sometimes. Yeah, I I said it out loud. (laughs) It's hard to believe God's promises when we are in suffering. But that's why I've included this story from Acts 5 here. It's a direct fulfillment of Jesus' promise to a group of people, don't forget, who were there and heard it the first time when he said it. They heard Jesus say it, they probably scoffed like we would, and then they got to live it out and see that it was true. So let me catch you up here. Let's do a first season recap, okay, as we get ready to binge watch the second season here. So Jesus came as the Son of God, proclaimed that he was God himself. He collected 12 followers in his inner circle called the disciples, probably had tens more outside of him, but he had 12 special leaders that he called his disciples, and he ministered with them, and then he was betrayed by one of them. He was killed on the cross by the religious authorities. Three days later, he rose again from the grave, and he spent the next month and a half as a resurrected person, pouring his new life into his disciples, helping them launch this new thing that they called the way that history has come to call Christianity. And so those disciples during that month and a half became apostles, and these cats at this point are all over Jerusalem preaching that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. And that you religious authorities, instead of welcoming him, you killed him. You killed God's promised Messiah. So as you can imagine, um, that's not the best way to win friends and influence people in the political time of the day. And so uh, they were arrested. They were dragged before these religious leaders. And since they had warned them once already and they didn't listen for their second offense, they got a beating Probably the traditional beating at the time in Jewish literature was, was 40 minus 1. So they got 49 lashings. Now, young adults here today, or maybe you're investigating Christianity, if this ancient punishment bothers you, if, they, if there's just something that just grates against you, they're going to beat them for what they said, which I hope it does upset you. It's upsetting. Remember that the idea of individual human rights, the idea of the worth and dignity of an individual, wasn't a thing back then. Human dignity did not exist in the ancient world. Individuals had dignity because of their wealth or their class. Hence, you had the nobility. 
If you were part of the nobility, well, you had earned it, so to speak, so you had dignity. But if you were not part of the nobility, you did not have dignity. You did not have worth. So the idea of all humans having value that we just take for granted today did not exist back then. And I'm telling you this because the reason we have this objection, the reason that like, that shouldn't be is because we have been affected by Christianity. We are living in the fruits of what these 12 men helped start. The idea of human dignity is a Christian value based on two easy truths. One, all humans are made in the image of God. And two, humans are so valuable that Jesus, the Son of God, was willing to die for them. And based on those two truths, Western culture birthed the eventual idea of individual human rights. And that's not just my preacherly assertion. This is all over intellectual history and philosophy if you look for it. Just last year, the, the secular popular historian Tom Holland wrote a best-selling book called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, where he makes this thesis that most of the things we love about Western culture, especially individual rights, is based in a Christian worldview. And this is by a man who says, I don't believe any of it, but I have to be intellectually honest and say this is where it came from. Now, unfortunately for our apostles at this point, um, that hasn't happened yet. Human worth is still based on nobility, and they ain't noble, so they get a good old-fashioned whooping for what they've said. Boys and girls, let's look together at verse 40 on your translation at the bottom of page 11. Here's what happened to the apostles. It says this, When the apostles stood before the judges, they spanked them and told them to stop telling people about Jesus. When the apostles left, They were so happy that God had let them suffer for Jesus. So every day they went all over the city telling more people about Jesus, the Savior. Now, boys and girls, I haven't got a spanking in a very long time. But I remember how much it hurt. And as an adult, boys and girls, the idea of getting a spanking from another adult, that sounds um, super uncomfortable. (laughs) It seems very painful. It seems very embarrassing. So, you know, just as I did as a little boy, boys and girls, you know, the best way to avoid getting a spanking is to play good, right? Change your behavior. Don't rock the boat. Do whatever they want. And, you know, adults, we kind of do the same thing, don't we? We adults, we create comfort zones of being good, of not rocking the boat. We're afraid of, of that awkward conversation or the, to, to be thought less of. And so fear is a big reason we stay in our comfort zones, isn't it? And avoid suffering. See, the judges here in Acts 5, they played on that same fear in the adults, or in the apostles, excuse me. They came to them and said, look guys, just be spiritual. That's okay. Don't be so Christian. Don't be so religious. Quit being so dogmatic. Don't be so exclusive. Don't be, can you just like, you know, be cool. Calm down. Have your little prayers. Do your rituals, but don't be too different. Remember that show Friends? So until it came on Disney Plus or HBO, whatever it is recently, the only way to watch Friends was late at night in syndication. And, and we're night owls, and so I have to confess that I have fallen asleep for easily the last 15 years to friends almost every night without fail i can like chapter and verse friends episodes which is not a good thing but there it is so anyway one of my favorite episodes is a character named ross 
is a PhD paleontologist, and he's very neurotic. And anyway, he loses his temper at work. And because he blows it at work, he is put on a leave, an administrative leave. And he's trying to, like, spin it as a positive thing for his friends. And so he says, you know, it's like an extended period of rest, a a time to relax, you know, like a sabbatical. And one of the other characters named Joey all of a sudden stops and goes, whoa, whoa, Ross, let's not get religious here. Thank you for laughing. It's a great joke, right? But it's also a great commentary on our culture. Whoa, 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 let's not get religious. We're just trying to have a normal conversation. Why'd you get weird? Right. Am I the only one who feels that pressure? Keep that stuff inside. Don't bring it into the public square, whatever that means. Certainly don't let that determine your voting choices. I mean, it's okay to be spiritual, but don't be openly religious, and certainly don't be exclusive. And we feel that pressure, don't we? We, we, we fear being made to feel awkward, being embarrassed. So we refrain, don't we, from having deep conversations with people because what if they ask me a question that I could only give a religious answer to? That would be weird. Perhaps we even do that, and so we refrain from having acquaintances go even deeper, and we've missed chances to share the gospel. It's just easier to say, I'm fine, great, how are you? And not actually say, well, actually, I'm not doing so good. This has been a tough time. See, we're fearful, and so we remain silent. But we do that because we think suffering is abnormal we think we should be able to avoid suffering. Here's what I mean. When suffering comes, when something disrupts our calm or just shakes our comfort zone, what do we do? We panic. We, we withdraw from social situations. We pull ourselves back from church very often. We isolate ourselves so we can get through this, right? Because we see it as a crisis. It's a disruption. It's an abnormality. And we think, let's just get through this, and then a plateau of relief will come, and then I can re-engage. Let me get on the other side of this trial to normal. But what if difficulty is the norm? And times of comfort and calm are just brief respites. What if that's what's abnormal? You know, John Bunyan captures this idea amazingly in Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan wrote this book from prison and he shows the Christian life as a, the character of Christian making an actual journey. And everybody he meets and everything he does is an allegory for the Christian life. And there's this one issue where he comes up to the hill of difficulty. I think I show, have a picture of this for you. He walks, he's the base of this hill, and here's mount or hill difficulty. You can't really tell the one on the right is a black and white about a couple hundred years old drawing where he's actually crawling through the brambles. It's such a hard climb, and he's exhausted, and he's climbing, and he's climbing, and Christian gets about halfway up, and he finds a little plateau with a nice arbor. There's some shade. There's some water, and it's built for the relief of travelers, a little sign says, and so he sits down, he gets a drink, he rests, he pulls his scroll out, and he reads a bit about the promises of the person he's making the journey for, and he falls asleep. 
And he wakes up hours later and he realizes his error. He's way behind. He's not going to make it past the difficulty by nightfall. He's lost so much that he might have gained if he hadn't fallen asleep. And then later in his journey, he's actually rebuked by another character. It's actually a character who's a pastor who gets to rebuke him. Um, and Bunyan wrote the rebuke in the vernacular of his day. So I'm not going to read it to you. I'll just translate it for you. The rebuke is this. Dude, you're not supposed to fall asleep there. It's just meant for a little break. You can't stay there. you got to get back on the road and climb the hill. See, Bunyan caught it brilliantly. We're supposed to be on the path of difficulty. That's the journey. That's the way. It's normal to experience trials and sufferings and difficulty. And thank God Almighty that He gives us brief respites so we can rest. Things are peaceful again. Those are breaks from the normal. Don't withdraw from everything during the trial and difficulty, waiting for normal to come back. That's when you need to dig into community and be surrounded by the community of Jesus. Trials and sufferings are the normal life of the Christian. So don't isolate yourself when things are going normal. (laughs) In those trials, you need the community. You need public worship. You need friends. Do not isolate yourself. So we try to avoid suffering primarily out of fear. But Jesus says if we embrace it, we will find joy. So now let's ask, what what do we lose in suffering? Let's all look together at verse 42 of Acts 5 there on page 11. Verse 42 says this. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So what did the apostles lose? They lost their fear. With with a boldness empowered by Jesus, they proclaim the gospel. They ignored the threats from the authorities. They wanted people to know about Jesus. Oh, dear Christian, what is it that keeps us in our comfort zone? It's fear. Would you like to lose that fear? You will lose it in suffering and trials when we endure them and when we see that most of the stuff we were scared about happening actually doesn't come to pass, we lose a lot of our fear. You know what else we lose in suffering? We lose our hard-hearted lack of sympathy for non-Christians. I want to show you another place in the New Testament. This is in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 15. You're welcome to turn there. We have a slide for it. Speaking of Jesus, it says this. As we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, the author of Hebrews tells us That suffering and temptation made Jesus sympathetic to us. That he looks on us as sheep without a shepherd who are helpless and harassed by sin because he knows what it feels like. Our Lord Jesus did not have a heart that needed to be softened. And yet, it was in his suffering that he was able to gain full sympathy with us oh how much more dear christian do our hearts need to be softened through suffering so that we see non-christians not as adversaries but as those harassed by sin helpless 
under the burden of their guilt. Slaves of sin, the Bible says, in need of a Savior. Here's a test to see our default mode. Please don't throw anything at me. I want you to, don't say it out loud. I'm not going to say it out loud. But I want you to, to, in the theater of your mind, I want you to think of something that the Bible unequivocally calls sin and that our culture unequivocally says, no, this is fine. You all have an issue, that your, your pet issue. Go ahead, think of that issue. The Bible calls it sin. Culture says it's not a sin. You got the issue in your head? Okay, when you think of it, if you put the words the in front of it and agenda after it, you're not being sympathetic. You're seeing them as adversaries. Because we forget. We forget that they're fellow victims. It's not a blank agenda. It's a blank slave in bondage harassed, overwhelmed, separated from their creator. See, inside of our comfort zones, we are not sympathetic at how much people who do not know Jesus are overwhelmed by fear, by doubt, by insecurity, by guilt, by hopelessness, by a lack of purpose. These are things that they may not even be able to articulate But if the Bible is true, they are creatures meant to be in relationship with their creator and they are alienated from that creator and it drives them crazy on a deep level that they don't understand. And in suffering, we become more sympathetic to their plight. We remember what it was like. We cling to the truths of our redemption because we have no hope. And it reminds us, oh yeah. My neighbors have no hope either, and they have nothing to cling to. So let's put this all together. So suffering is the nature of the Christian life. Therefore, we should not try to avoid suffering. Rather, we should embrace suffering. Why? Because in suffering, we lose the fear that holds us in our comfort zone. In suffering, we become more sympathetic to non-Christians. We see them as harassed by sin instead of adversaries out to get us. So we lose some things in suffering, which is why God sends us suffering. But also in suffering, we gain so much. What do we gain in suffering? Well, let's look again at our apostles. Let's look together at verse 41 there in Acts 5. It says this. It says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. What did they gain? Well, it sounds a lot like Jesus' promise in Matthew 5, doesn't it? Have you forgotten that already? Let's remember what that, what that was. Boys and girls, let's, let's look at your version of Matthew 5 to remind ourselves. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, Be happy when others make fun of you and tell lies about you because of me. Shout for joy and celebrate because you will have a great prize in heaven since they treated the Old Testament heroes the same way. You see, boys and girls, Jesus promised it, and we see the apostles here in Acts 5. They experience it. They live it out. An overwhelming, overpowering, exuberant joy from persecution, from suffering, just like Jesus promised. Do you believe Jesus promised? See, I don't think I would try so hard to avoid suffering if I really believed Jesus. Do we have this kind of powerful joy in our life? 
Could it be that the reason so many of us are so unfulfilled in this life is that we've put so much energy into maintaining a comfort zone and we have missed the joy that comes from suffering? Jesus promises an overwhelming, overflowing, overpowering joy to those who suffer for him. Oh, what if we actually believed him? See, having that kind of suffering and joy and trials is what creates the opportunity for real relationships with non-Christians. When they see us rejoicing in suffering, it messes them up. The dominant culture in America is an anti-supernatural culture. Philosophers call it materialism. Not religious materialism. It doesn't mean wanting more money and stuff. Materialism philosophically means this world, the material we can measure That is the only thing that is. Nothing else exists. And so culture says, therefore, based on that materialism, all meaning, all hope must be found right here. Because this is all we got. So any source of disappointment, any source of pain must be resisted, canceled, fought against, never embraced, never rejoiced over. So when we rejoice in suffering, they want to know how. What resources do you have that I don't have? How are you dealing with this so well? And when they ask a serious question, they're automatically giving you permission to give a serious answer. You say, well, my life has been really bad, but you know, I believe that Jesus Christ is actually the Son of God. And I believe that he died and he rose from the grave for me. And that when I'm united to him by faith, what is true of him is true of me. So he gives me his peace. He gives me his joy. He gives me his wholeness. And it allows me to endure. And you're seeing the fruit of that. But if we hide our suffering, they never ask the question. And so we never get to answer it. But there's more that we gain in suffering. In verse 41, it tells us that they rejoiced that they were counted worthy. The apostles were actually honored to have been dishonored for Christ. It's important to understand that this was a shame culture. And so in that culture, don't get me wrong, 39 lashings does not sound pleasant at all. But the real punishment was the psychological embarrassment and shame of being publicly flogged as an adult male in that culture. It was meant to pour shame on them. And as we know, although we don't like to use it, shame is a very powerful motivator. And notice how they responded. This attack upon their dignity, this public shaming, what did it do? Notice how weird these vintage Christians are. Their response in verse 40 and 41 is they rejoiced. They were honored. They felt as if they had done something great and it stirred their very soul. That's crazy. I mean, in a culture that creates insecure, fragile people like me, that's crazy. You know, we all have this deep desire for our life to matter. We articulate it in different ways, but deep down we want our lives to count for something. We don't just want to exist. We want to live, right? We want to make a difference. However you say it in your head, you want to be significant. If the Bible is true, that's a shadow desire of the real desire to be a worthy servant of your Creator. 
It's a recognition in your very soul that you were created to be used. And when those two things go together, you feel a satisfaction, what the Bible calls shalom, peace, wholeness that you can never experience in any other way. That's part of our being made in God's image is that we were meant for a purpose. And you, as a Christian, will never be so fulfilled and satisfied as when you are opposed for Jesus' sake, that when you endure suffering. That's what Jesus promises in Matthew 5. And in that fulfillment, we get a glimpse, just a whiff of the main benefit from suffering. In suffering, we get Jesus. We get closer to the heart of God and we become more like Jesus through suffering. A fellow PCA pastor who just retired from his church in New York, his name's Tim Keller, he says it better than I could. Here's how he put it. He says, Jesus Christ did not suffer so that you would not suffer. He suffered so that when you suffer, you'll become more like him. The gospel does not promise you better life circumstances. It promises you a better life. See, when Christians suffer, it draws us closer to God himself because God has suffered as well. We are stepping into his own suffering. God loves his creation. God loves his creatures. God loves his people. And he has watched all of those be ravaged by sin and death. The story of redemption is rooted not just in the fact that God will not let sin and death win, but it's also rooted in the fact that because he loves, he suffers as his creatures and creations suffer, and he won't stand for it. And it is from the heart of that suffering God that he sent his only begotten Son. And it is from that suffering, loving heart of his Son who lived to rescue us. What did we just confess in our confession of faith? That Jesus took on 33 years of suffering and temptation to be the sympathetic high priest who would offer not a lamb, not a goat, but himself, his own blood, dying the death that we should have died to destroy the power of sin and death. And until he comes back for his people, there will be suffering. But in that suffering, we find joy and honor which fulfills our heart. See, when our neighbors see us actually rejoicing, as I said earlier, when they actually see us, they know us, they've had life with us, they see us suffering and rejoicing, it messes them up. Some will want to know why and how. Suffering is a gateway to evangelism. It's a way to see the gospel spread in our neighborhoods as we are in relationship with our neighbors, as we reconnect, Lord willing, with coworkers. If Jesus has made any difference in our life, it will come out in the natural process of letting people know who we are and what's in our heart. Unless in fear we hide ourselves and stick with the superficial, hi, how you doing? Fine, how are you? Good, bye. Christian, are you willing to let people know who you really are? All the world is looking for joy, and we have the key in Jesus. Suffering is the way that God himself rescued us. 
And so when we suffer, that same God gives us joy. And if we are living openly before our neighbors, they will see that joy and wonder. Oh, dear Christian, get out of that comfort zone that's causing you to avoid suffering. And instead, embrace the suffering for Jesus. And you will find joy. You will find honor. And for those of you actually in the middle of suffering right now, you may be sitting there thinking, I'm hurting, I have no joy, and I don't feel any honor. Man, I've been there. I know you've been there too. But more importantly, God has been there. God himself has not merely suffered along with his creatures, along with creation. In the person of Jesus Christ, God has suffered for his creation, for his creatures. Here's how British pastor and scholar John Stott put it so well. He says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? See, Jesus Christ suffered for sinners. Jesus Christ claimed to be the Son of God, God Himself. If the Bible is true, God knows what it's like to lose a child. God knows what it's like to be slandered, to, be su- to suffer unjustly, to be arrested falsely, to be lynched. Suffering is the way that God himself has chosen to rescue us. And so when we suffer, he gives us joy. In our darkest moments of grief, when the suffering is more than you can bear, look to the cross and see Jesus dying an undeserved death for sinners and see God the Father letting it happen for your benefit. God knows what it means to suffer. And He can bring relief and meaning to you in your suffering. In the Gospel, we have the resources we need to endure and have joy in suffering. Those resources are yours for the taking. So especially if you've been in church world for a while, I'm going to say it. Cast off everything you've called religion. Everything you think Christianity is. Cast it all off and just simply place your faith and trust in Jesus again for the first time. And you will gain so much. He will bring you joy and meaning in your suffering. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, it's too much to think about. It's so much easier to keep you aloof, to think of Jesus not as a person but as a theological truth. But Lord, to actually think about you suffering as you watched your only son die. And Lord Jesus, to think about you as a human enduring all of that for us. It humbles us, Lord. But it also exalts us to think that you loved us so much you did it willingly. Oh Lord God, we pray that you would truly give us meaning in our suffering. Would you make your word true in our lives? Give us joy. Make us blessed as we suffer. Give us opportunity, Lord, to use our suffering for the good of others that we might spread your kingdom. And we ask all this, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.